There is nothing quite like the high of stepping into a brand new home. But as we will discover on today's Truth Encounter, the newness doesn't last. We are almost at the conclusion of our study of the book of Revelation. And in chapter 21, Jesus reveals a home that will never need to be remodeled. Let's join our study teacher, Dave Wurtson, as he introduces our study, sharing about the time we moved into our new house about 23 years ago, and then goes on to help us discover how to move into a new home that will never need to be remodeled. Dave? I think probably one of the biggest highs that I've ever had in life was back in 1980. I was working on my, my doctorate degree at Dallas Seminary, but during the time I kind of took time off, and Bill Brown right over here, and I started working for about six months building a house over on Meadowbrook Lane. And we worked, in fact, Bill was working over at General Dynamics at the time, and we would start at 8 o'clock in the morning and work till about 12 o'clock, and then Bill would quit the home and change clothes and run out and work at General Dynamics, and we would do that about four days a week. I'll never forget it was the worst winter that Midlothian had ever had. I remember one day, Bill and I actually skated down the front lawn trying to get to the front door. I mean, we wondered at that time whether this whole thing was worth it. I'll never forget when we were roofing the thing. Mary and I were actually sitting on skateboards instead of getting our knees all banged up. And, you know, you had to be sure to get the skateboard not headed down the roof, but across the roof. And I'll never forget the wind was blowing about 50 miles an hour across that roof. And Mary came up off the ladder after going down for something. And, man, a big shingle peeled off and hit her right in the head. And, you know, she came close to taking the Lord's name in vain, but she didn't. But I'll never forget it was in the spring and we finally had the house complete and Bill and Mary and I went over to the bank and got everything cleaned out and all taken care of. And I'll never forget sitting down in our living room. We've been over in this little house on Overlook Lane. I'll never forget there was brand new carpet that had been put down and I was sitting at our dining room table and sitting in that brand new house. You could smell the brand new carpet and I looked across the table at Mary. That was one of the, the really high points of my life. Here we were in a new home, and it had all that fresh newness that a new home has. Some of you, as I've been talking, can remember. Maybe some of you have done that just recently. As I ride my bike through Midlothian, it seems like all the places that I've done in the past where there was just nobody, now there's a house there. And there's something exciting about moving into a new home. Something really, really exciting about a new home. But you know what? We've been in our home for years now. And now Mary tells me, man, we need to redo the floors in the bathroom. And the rug in the living room is wearing out. And we need to do some painting. And I need to take care of this. And I need to take care of this. And there's a part of me that says, let's just chuck this old thing, man. This stuff is just so hard to take care of. Anybody identify with that? You know, wouldn't you like to have a home that's going to be brand new forever and ever and ever? And that's what Revelation 21 is promising us. If we turn to Revelation chapter 21, verse 9, Jesus Christ is the bridegroom, and he is the one that has been preparing a home. He promised us in John 14. He said, if I go, I will prepare a place for you, and I will come back so that you can live with me forever and ever and ever. And Revelation chapter 21, as we're closing this book of Revelation, gives us a vision of the bride's new home. And I got good news for you. If you know Christ is your Savior, if you've invited Jesus inside your life, 
then the new home is for you. You're the bride in this situation, and brides are important stuff when they come to this business of a new home. Now, I want you to understand a little bit about the old, you know, back in the first century, their idea of marriage. Like in our culture, if a couple's engaged, we don't consider them married. Like a, a couple that's engaged, we would refer to her as a bride-to-be and as a wife-to-be. On her wedding day, she would be a bride, and then she would be a wife after the wedding was all completed. In the ancient world, their espousal period, their engagement period was much more serious. In fact, in their culture, during the espousal period, they would refer to the woman as a bride, and she would also be a wife. Because from a legal standpoint, you saw that in the story of Mary and Joseph, because Mary was a spouse to Joseph, she would be considered the wife of Joseph. That's why, even though they hadn't culminated their relationship, that's why she was going down to Bethlehem to be numbered in the family of Joseph, the son of David, because from a legal standpoint in the first century, she was already a bride, already a wife. It's very important to get that all down. Because that's the imagery John is saying to you. If you know Christ as your Savior today, then you're the bride of Christ. You're also the wife of Christ. You're in an espousal period. And what the book of Revelation is using symbolically, it's saying one day your bridegroom's going to come for you, and then eternity is going to culminate in your bridegroom, your husband, giving you an eternal home. And all that is symbolism for the incredible love that the divine Lord of the universe is going to have for you. And John the Apostle, as he closes this book, is trying to give the early first century a vision of this incredible home that the Lord has planned for them. Look at it in Revelation 21, verse 9. Now, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Now, this same angel was introduced to us in Revelation 17. He's one of the angels who has the seven bowls, which are the final judgment, and it's those bowl judgments that are poured out upon the earth that destroy the secular kingdom. Remember in the book of Revelation, back in 17 and 18, we were introduced to a symbolism of a woman. Remember, we were introduced to a whore, a prostitute. Remember I pictured her coming in the auditorium dressed in purple and red, decked out with diamonds. Her makeup is incredibly alluring. I mean, she's this gaudy yet incredibly seductive woman. And I showed you how she is a symbol used in the book of John for just this present material system. Remember in Revelation 17 and 18, we also saw that this woman was a city, the city of Babylon. And we've been spending a lot of weeks, and I've been often using the illustration that there's a hunger in all of your hearts for the city. I talked about that last week. There's a hunger for our young people to go to the big city. When I was a kid living in New Jersey, there was a hunger to go to the really big American city, to go to New York. There's something exciting, something alluring. And what the the writer of Revelation understands is that that's a hunger in the human heart. Satan wants to get you to live just for the present cities. During the tribulation period, I believe that there's going to be a great final world city. 
There's going to be a great economic city, and maybe it's going to be Manhattan. Like if the Lord came for his bride, the church today, and the tribulation period was initiated, I think it's very possible that Manhattan, the Big Apple itself, which right now is the center of the world economy, maybe that's going to be the city. But possibly the Lord's going to wait for another thousand years, because, you know, a thousand years is as a day. So maybe it's going to be another city. But I want to understand that the idea of this great ultimate material system is very much a part of what Satan tries to get you to live for. And I've been trying to alert you to that. As college students go to Austin, as they go down to Texas A&M, as they go to different schools, as, as we have young people go and study interior design in Manhattan, one of the temptations they're going to face is come on and live for the present world system. Live for the parties. Live for the drinking. Live for the immorality. Live for the fun that you can have. The Bible knows all about that. Don't think that the Bible doesn't know about the fun of that city and, and the pleasures you're going to have and the excitement you're going to have. But it also tells you the truth about the city. That city is not going to be able to, to comfort you in the end. It's not going to give you strong families. In fact, it's going to tear all those things apart. In the end, the city will give you a lot of quick pleasures, and then it will suck the, the life out of you. That's what Revelation 17 and 18 is about. I want to give you a hunger for the ultimate city. I want you not to live for any city on planet Earth. I want you not to just live to be the head of General Motors or the head of TI or the head of this, one of the cement plants. I don't want you to want to climb up the ladder. And that's the whole meaning. You, that's fine if the Lord gives you leadership like he did to Daniel. Daniel became a great leader in Babylon, but don't live for Babylon. And that's the point of this passage. The same angel that poured out the judgment against the secular city is now going to show us a different woman. This is the bride of the Lamb. She is pure. She is radiating. And the, I want you to feel the contrast. It's the difference between a gaudy whore and the beautiful, pure, virgin bride. I want you to think about going to a wedding where you know for sure that the woman has kept herself clean. She has kept herself pure. There is a tremendous difference in a marriage ceremony when the audience knows this couple has followed Jesus' plan, has followed Jesus' order. And this is going to be the initiation. They're going to make holy vows, and then they're going to go enjoy that incredible intimacy of relationship. That's the picture that God wants you to have of living for that city, and that city is a bride and she's a city. The same thing that Babylon was, it represented the whore, that seductive, seductive pull into materialism and secularism. This woman is the bride of Christ, representing the pull of the spirit into a life of meaning, into a life of eternity, into a life of forgiveness that will last forever. It says this angel said, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. The Bible in the New Testament, Ephesians, one of the biggest ideas in the book of Ephesians is that you are the bride of the Lamb of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that his strong desire in life is that he might present you as a virgin bride to Jesus, that you will be fully, purely devoted to Jesus. And you need to let his blood cover you and let the, the forgiveness of his love overwhelm you so that day by day we're made holy just like ephesians chapter 5 talks us about that the lord is at work in our life to help us to become pure john is telling us that you are the wife the bride of the lamb 
It says, then he carried me away in the spirit. So John is having this, this incredibly ecstatic, prophetic experience. Just like Moses was taken to Mount Nebo and was able to look at all of the promised land, now John the Apostle, as we close the Bible, is taken not to a physical mountain like Mount Nebo, which is across the Dead Sea, but now he's taken to a great spiritual mountain. And this mountain is going to give him a vista where he's going to be able to see eternity. John is having a spiritual experience. And just like we've been going through the book, remember that in the spirit world that we're seeing holy cartooning, sacred cartooning. But we've also taught you that there's reality behind those cartoons. And there's incredibly eternal truth and there's going to be substance. What I want you to see that in this is that this city does represent you as the people of God. It represents the bride of Christ. But I want to remember that just as I told you that I think in the tribulation period there will be a literal, physical city, a materialistic city that people will long to go to, that all the merchants of the world will be bringing their luxury goods to. John is now telling us that there's ultimately going to be a place where you live with God. And I want you to capture a vision. Bobby is beginning to experience she's living with God. That's what the Bible teaches. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And as I struggle to give you a vision of the Holy City today, I believe that Bobby would be saying, boy, Dave, you're not doing a very good job. This city's incredible. This city has colors and sounds and music. And, and man, the grandeur of the most beautiful sunset I ever saw on planet Earth doesn't begin to get across what the dwelling place of God is. And what I want you to know is that all Bobby's in is kind of the heaven where God dwells now. But the Bible tells us that the Lord's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And then God's dwelling is going to come and intersect with that new heaven and that new earth, that new universe. And it just blows your mind the wondrous newness that God has for us forever and ever. So that's the way I want you to think. If you're into science fiction, science fiction doesn't begin to stir your imagination the way Revelation should. And I want you to use those same powers of imagination to be carried away and to see this holy city. It's the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It's shown with the glory, verse, uh, verse 11, it's shown with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, like a diamond that was clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's very important. On the gates, there's 12 gates in the city, and on those gates are the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates in the south, and three gates in the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles. This is the ultimate city of your dreams. This is the place that you were designed to live. And the big issue is, how am I going to get into the city? Now, you live in a culture that tells you, the United Nations, in fact, met and preached the message to the world that all religions are basically the same. That they all stress the same basic moral values. They express the basic unity of love. They express the basic need for us to, to have realize that there's a spiritual dimension. You're going to hear eloquent talking about the world religions and the basic unity that they have. What I want you to understand is that the Bible's saying very clearly here, if you really want 
to get connected with the real God that's really there, you're going to have to do it through the God of the Old Testament. That's what the tribes of Israel are about. You see, you happen to live in a universe where the ultimate being in the universe didn't decide to speak to Confucius and reveal his covenant to Confucius. Now, he could have, but he didn't. In other words, the Bible does not tell us that God came down to Buddha and gave Buddha a revelation. And so that if you want to follow Buddhism, that'll be your spoke to the wheel to get to the center. And I know if you're politically correct, you're not going to like what I'm going to say. But I got news for you. If you drink sulfuric acid, I don't care what you believe about it, it'll burn your stomach to death. You'll die. If you get it in, our, in your eyes, it'll make you blind. That's what happens in chemistry. In religion, there are realities. There are laws. And one of the laws is that the eternal God of the universe spoke to the children of Israel. You live in a planet where the living God of the universe came down on Mount Sinai on a real mountain and revealed the basic moral law. Now that moral law is written on all of your hearts. But God didn't want you to miss it, and he actually wrote it on a tablet of stone with his finger. Now, you can decide whatever you want to. You live in a culture that says, I don't like the thou shalt not commit adultery. Let's chuck that one out. We don't like that one. We don't like the principle that you can't covet things. In other words, we're going to build a whole culture on coveting. We're going to build a whole economic system on trying to get people to, to take anything they desire and run up massive debt. You can change the laws of God, but I got news for you. You don't change them. It'll break you in half if you disobey those laws. And that's not what I said. So don't chuck it. You live in a culture that systematically is going through the Ten Commandments, and they chuck the ones they don't like. In other words, if you have a baby in your womb as a woman, and you think the, that baby is going to take away some of your freedom... You think that that baby's going to make it tough on you financially? You think that that baby could keep you from fulfilling your individual personal dreams? Then one of your biggest rights in the modern society is just to eliminate that. that and we call it an embryo. We call it just a vestige of your body because if you change the terminology, then it's no big deal. That's what the Nazis did. You just call a Jew a, a bad name that depersonalizes them, and then you can put them in the gas chambers. Well, I got news for you. The Bible says that God shapes a little one from the moment it's conceived. It says you're fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 139, it says that you are being woven together by the Creator. That all those little babies, and little, like no matter which baby it is in our congregation, from the time that they're conceived, we need to be a congregation that respects that little life. We need to be the one that, that, that defends that little life. And you live in a culture where the debates are very, very cunning. Because some of you ladies are sitting here going, boy, you know, that takes away my right. I don't even, I don't even have control over my body. Well, the Bible didn't teach you that I don't have control over my body either. I need to submit my body to Jesus and do what he wants to with my body. That's when I'm really going to be free. That one of the worst things that could happen to me is for me just to use my body for what I want to do with it. I need to let God do with it what he wants me to do. Whether you're a man or a woman, you need to do that. It's very important. And I want you to know that this has been going on for a long time. Idolatry and paganism always chucks the laws of God. And murder 
becomes, we don't call it murder. We just change the words a little bit. And that's what Revelation wants you to understand, that there's this big difference in cities. There's this secular city with its viewpoints, and there's this holy city with the moral realities of God that you can have Jesus create in your life by giving you a new life. The idea of the gates having the 12 tribes of Israel, God is telling you, you want to get into the eternal city? Then the eternal God of the universe says you're going to need to begin with the Old Testament. Ephesians chapter 2 says that our reality of relationship with Jesus is built on the prophets, which are the Old Testament inspired prophets, which gave us Genesis through Malachi. And then it tells us that we're built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Notice that the foundations of this eternal city are represented to be the 12 apostles. Now, that's very important. Because I would, if I was writing this passage, I would have made the symbolism go, I would have made the foundation, the foundation of the city be Israel. Because that's where we started out. God's revelation in the Old Testament. And then I would have had the gates, the way you get into the city, being the 12 apostles. But John wanted to really underscore in the first century that the new covenant had been initiated. And from God's perspective, the foundation of eternity was always built on the Son of God. The foundation of eternity was always going to be built on his precious Messiah. And what he was doing is protecting us. Because we also live in a society where you hear a lot about a Judeo-Christian ethic. How many of you ever heard of a Judeo-Christian ethic? You've all heard of that. Conservatives talk about a Judeo-Christian ethic. And in our society, as you go away to college and as you go on your life, you're going to be very tempted to believe there's the, the people that follow the Old Testament scriptures and there's the people that follow the New Testament scriptures. There's the Jewish people that follow the way of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they have such a marvelous tradition. It's such a good faith. And there's those that follow Jesus. What John is telling us is that the foundation of the eternal city is built in the ultimate movement of the promises of the Old Testament moving to fulfillment in Jesus, which is the message revealed to us by the 12 apostles. The message of Israel in the Old Testament is united with the message of the 12 apostles. Everybody got that? It's very important to get that. Modern Judaism today, modern Judaism today is not the outflow from the Old Testament. It is the outflow of Pharisaism and rabbinic Judaism, which is based upon good works. And I will defend anyone's right to choose that faith. So don't say that I'm being anti-Jewish. I'm not. My Savior was Jewish. But I want you to be crystal clear that the eternal city that John the Apostle sees is a city that you get into not with one group obeying through their own human effort the Ten Commandments and trying to live a good life and burning candles on Hanukkah and doing good things. And I would say that of any religion. And then there's another group of people that get to heaven because they believe in Jesus and they believe in this Christian thing. John is telling us the universal message, the foundation of this entire holy city. You want to live with God forever and ever. You got to come and build on the foundation of the 12 apostles. 
They're the ones. It's in the New Testament that we see the movement of the Old Testament towards what the real God of the universe was trying to get across to us. That all the law of the Old Testament was moving towards the great fulfillment of the law in the ultimate Israel, which is Jesus. Jesus is the universal Savior for everyone. That's what this idea of the foundations being the 12 apostles and the gates are the 12 tribes of Israel because it's the Old Testament and the New Testament united together. But the foundation of it all is always the message of Jesus as revealed to us through the 12 apostles who walked with him. I want to give you another application. Be very careful. Like whenever you're in a church family, because I know that some of you are going you're to move, you're going to grow up, you're going to go away to other places and you'll be involved in other things. I want you to be very careful Wherever you go to church, be sure they open up this book and they explain the Old and New Testaments to you. If you find that you're going to church week after week after week and you could leave your Bible at home and you're hearing a lot of really what you think are really neat things, but it's really not, you can't tie it down into the Old and New Testament scriptures taught to you in an orderly way, book by book. So the, the ideas are put in the order that God gave them to us. So you can read it on your own and understand where they're getting the things from. Be careful. Don't ever move away from the foundation of the 12 tribes of Israel giving you the Old Testament and the New Testament message of Christ. Now this next paragraph here gives us an incredible vision of the grandeur of the city. Look what it says. It says, the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod. It's a golden measuring rod, of course. You know, you even have rulers made out of gold in this eternal city. And he measured the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square. As long as it was wide, he measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadium length and as wide and as high as it was long. He measured its wall, and it was 144 cubits thick. That's about 230 feet thick. That's the, the width of this wall. By a man's measure, which is also the measure of an angel. The wall was made of jasper. And then he goes through and talks about how each one, a part of this wall, is made out of a different precious gems. And the idea of these precious gems is that it's all these incredible colors. Now, there's a couple things I want to stress to you. First of all, this city, if I take 12,000 stadia, that equals about 1,500 miles. This city stretches from New York City to Houston, just one side of the city. This city is as big. If you take the Mississippi River and divide the United States from the Mississippi West, this city is as big as the whole western United States. And remember, this city is not just laid out like you think in two dimensions. When you're learning to fly, you learn very fast how we usually operate just in two dimensions. Because when you throw in the third dimension, it's a totally different ballgame. This city throws in the other dimension. It's not just linear. It's not just spatially laid out like on a, what we think of as a flat surface. This city goes 1,500 miles, the whole western United States. But it also goes 1,500 miles up. So this is like to blow your mind. Ken Pritchett flies about 26,000 feet. He gets in his plane, pulls the thing back, and it roars to 26,000 feet. Even better than the 737. Minute did it kick to tell the control tower. And we have just busted 10,000, just busted 20,000. We're now at 26,000 feet. And you can almost hear the guy saying, well, how in the world do you get up there that fast? 
26,000 feet is way, way up in the air. But you've just barely begun to hit the different levels of the city at 26,000 feet. Imagine what it would be like to be 1,500 miles up in the air and, and you've got to explore this whole city. Now, what you say, well, Dave, why is the city built like that? Because in the ancient Solomonic temple, the most holy place, the most holy place was a perfect cube. It was 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet. It was a perfect cube of 30 feet on every side. And you know the incredible thing that John is telling us? In the ultimate eternal city, the entire city has become the holy place. That's why John will tell us there's no temple in the city. You know why you need a temple? Because right now we live in a world, like back in the Old Testament, we live in a world where sin is controlling the environment. So we carve out a holy place, like the Temple of Solomon, and the most holy place is where the Shekinah glory of God dwells, and we've got to keep it divided from the secular world out here, because that world is unclean. And so you have the Holy of Holies, and a lot of you have in your heart the mentality that I go to holy places. Like, how many of you feel that you're in a more holy place now than you were in on Friday night? Anybody thinking like that? My son Jonathan and Leslie just taught a lesson and they put on the board spiritual, they were sacred and secular. And then they had the kids. They had down, like eating lunch at school and they had the kids involved. They put secular. Playing in the band at the Friday night football game, secular. Praying, spiritual. Singing music. They asked, then the kids would say, well, what kind of music were you singing? If you were singing Michael W. Smith, depending upon what Michael W. was singing at that particular time, sacred or, or secular. How many of you think like that? A whole bunch of you think like that. You know why? Because in your own mind, you've got a big division between the holy and the sacred. One of the things I want you to understand that even now, as the bride of Christ, you have become the temple. And instead of us having an earthly temple in Jerusalem, you have become the holy of holies for people. Because you're the bride of Christ. You're the place where God's presence dwells. You never should have a division between the sacred and the secular in your life. It'll change your life if you'll begin to think like that. And part of this idea that John wants us to understand it's right now as the Holy Spirit dwell in your life and as you become the holy of holies for people because you're the place where Jesus, God's presence dwells. And as you go out into the world, you become the light of the world. But if you think that you come in and out of the presence of God, a whole bunch of you, like a lot of the young people can figure, I'm now at a party on Friday night. When the wine starts to flow or the beer starts to flow and your cheeks get flushed and the jokes start to get dirty, you can feel like I'm now in the secular arena and I can just be a secular people. And don't you adults sit there and go, man, that's what the kids do. I've seen you adults do exactly the same thing. So don't knock the kids. You do it too. You say, Dave, how do I get a handle on it? Some of you deep in your heart are saying, Dave, I don't want to tell those dirty jokes. I really don't want to have to get plastered to have a good time. How do I not do that? 
And I want you to listen to me really carefully. You need to stop dividing the secular and the sacred. And the second thing you need to realize, you need to begin to realize that it's in the sacred that you're really going to have the best time. I'm going to say that again. It's in the sacred that you're really going to have the best time. I would plead with you. I would plead with you from the bottom of my heart. Mary and I have been married since 69. I've only had Mary. My kids are not moving in and out of all different kinds of relationships. And Mary and I can just tell you from the depths of our heart, we believe that Jesus was the answer to our life when we were just young kids in our 20s. And I can just tell you at 50 years of age, Jesus is still coming through for us. And we are having a blast. We're in love. We are having better relationships as Jesus teaches us things. Life is really, really great. You've got to understand this. The Lord wants the holy city to enter into your life now. And one of the hardest things for me is to watch Satan convince so many of you that you can walk out of the holy city and you can do your little thing out there in the secular city and you can have a good time out there in the secular city and it's not going to hurt you. If you know Christ your Savior, you never walk away from the holy city. And what John is telling you, one day you're going to live in this colossal city, this incredible, wondrous city. I want all of you ladies that have engagement rings on your finger. I want all of you ladies, hold your, if you've got an engagement ring on your finger, hold it up. All of you ladies, hold it up and look at it. Put it in front of you and look at it. Now, in this room, that engagement ring doesn't look that great, does it? But when you put it in the sunlight, what does it do in the sunlight? What does a diamond ring do in the sunlight? It just sparkles and radiates and shows incredible light. John is saying this entire city radiates like that. That's what John wants you to understand. That's what he wants you to get a hold of. The idea of the 1,500 miles is this entire city, which is going to be your homeland, is the holy city. I want to get a couple other things across and we'll be done. It says that the nations, notice right here, some of the other day, what am I going to be doing? Playing harps and, and, you know, just sitting around having a church fellowship dinner for all of eternity. I want you to see something else. I love this. It says, I did not see a temple in the city, verse 22, because the Lord God Almighty was there, and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. So the Shekinah glory of God is the electrical power for the city. It gives it light. And the nations will walk by its light, and the king of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. What is being described here is that there's a whole new universe created with nations and kings and kingdoms. Jesus promised you that if you are one of his people, you're one day going to rule over kingdoms. John is describing this here and exactly who these nations are here. Maybe they're the people that believe in Jesus during the millennial kingdom. And they are those that respond to the king of kings during the millennial kingdom. And they enter eternity and they live in this new heaven and new earth. We could speculate all different kinds of things. Another idea might be that just like in the different courses of Levites, in the Old Testament, not all the priests served in the temple all the time. Remember the story of John the Baptist's daddy, Zechariah. 
Remember, it was his time as a Levite to come and serve in the temple. So maybe in eternity, we live out there in this incredible, wondrous, beautiful new creation. And then we have our times to come and serve in the holy city, the ultimate holy of holies. And it wouldn't be that you were outside the presence of God, because like right now, Jesus' presence is with you. And I think in eternity, it'll be, you know, you'll just know it even more and you'll see it and experience and, and feel it and be able to experience it with your senses a million times more. But maybe part of what John is telling us is that we're going to be living in this incredible universe and ruling these cities and doing all incredibly creative things. And then we go to the holy city, the perfect cube of the holy of holies, and we have these special times. I don't know. But all that I know is that the vision of eternity is not like you're sleeping on a cloud somewhere. What I want you to get from today is the vision of a city. Imagine a city that's 1,500 miles in every direction, straight up, a perfect cube. Every, every beautiful mineral, that every beautiful gem, emeralds and rubies and chalcedony and, and beryl and just all these colors, purple, red, green, yellow, all these incredible colors and shine incredibly powerful lights through the whole thing. It's all translucent like a perfect piece of glass that's shining incredibly bright light. That's what this place looks like. For you that are artists, I want you to know the inspiration of your art needs to be the glory of God. It's going to need to be the radiating wonder of his love. If you're a musician, I want you to think about the music of this city. I want you to hear what I'm singing. Go back and read Revelation 21 and let the Lord give you some songs that flow from this ultimate vision of the holy city. Finally, I want you to realize if you know Christ is your Savior, then nothing can ever separate you from that city. That's the wonder of the new Jerusalem. I sat on Thursday, Mary and I just watching Bobby, chain stokes breathing. Shane Stokes breathing, just back and forth, thinking she's going to die at any minute. Monica saying, dear Lord, help my daddy to get here before mom dies. Then she lives several more hours. That's a bummer. In fact, I watch a whole bunch of you. A lot of you will come to a place like that. You'll look at someone dying like that, and you quick run out of the room because you don't want to deal with death. Brothers and sisters, you have got to deal with death because it's part of existence. It happens. It's just the way the world is right now. It's the curse. As Becky was watching her mom die, she told me about an atheist at work that she worked with, a young man that works with her at work that doesn't believe in God at all. And Becky shared how he came to the hospital and asked her, how are you doing, Becky? And Becky said, I'm doing all right. It's really, really hard, and I'm crying, but I'm doing all right. And her atheist friend, dear, dear guy, said, it's your faith, isn't it? And she said, you bet, it's my faith. They walked out to the car. They walked out to the car, and Becky was saying to him, he said, you know, I don't want to push anything on you, but my faith is really helping. And I know what you believe, implying I know you're an atheist. This dear friend said, I'm not sure what I believe now. We need to pray that Becky's friend will come to know and understand that there's a living God, Jesus, that he can live with forever and ever in this kind of a city. Because maybe that's what the Lord wants to teach him. Maybe that's why he took Bobby home early, to confront some of us and some of your friends with the reality 
This secular Babylon doesn't last forever and ever and ever. I challenge an atheist to stand at a deathbed and affirm their belief. And what I want you to capture is the incredible difference that faith in the biblical Jesus, the Old Testament leading to the New Testament, the glorious message of what Jesus can do, and what we need to encourage each other to do is we need to encourage each other as we grow older to believe more and more and more in this city. You know what? My dad is in that city today. My mom is in that city today. There's a part of me from a human standpoint that because it's so painful, I just want to forget about my dad. I just want to forget about my mom. I want to forget about death. But you know when I read this passage, I don't have to be sick like that. I don't have to run away. I don't have to try to harden myself. Instead, I can think of my dad being in that city with his precious Savior. And I can look forward to the day when I'm going to be with him. And it gives life. You see the continuum that it gives life? It gives life a continuum that, that smoothly flows from one experience to the next. And you can do so without fear. You can do so crying together and, and giving comfort to one another, but not sorrowing like those who have no hope. God has a much bigger miracle that he wants us to understand. He's the eternal daddy. You know what one of the legates said to me? Saying, you know what? When my kids are away from me, sometimes I get so hungry that I want to see him again. You know what? Our daddy in heaven feels like that sometimes. Sometimes he says, one of my kids, I just want to be with them. I want to be with them where I can just be face to face with them. And I don't understand how the eternal God of the universe has that kind of a passion for us, but he does. And that's why sometimes he calls one of his children home. And from what we learned today, is it a bad deal? Is it a bad deal to be taken to this kind of splendor, this kind of glory, this kind of beauty, free from pain and suffering forever and ever and ever? From God's perspective, whether that happens at 3, at 18, at 50, at 106, that's the city. That's the city we need to live for. Abraham built his life. He lived for the city that had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. I trust that that's a city that you're living for, that you're, that you're longing for. Let that holy of holies that dwells in your heart give you a yearning for the ultimate holy of holies that's going to be your new home forever and ever that will never, never wear out. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would use this vision of the celestial city to help us to not live for the, the false counterfeit that Satan would have us to live for. Help us to be pure this week because we learn where our true citizenship lies. In this name we pray. Amen.